let's start this episode back in the mid-1950s. Those happy days in American life when the economy was booming, families were intact, and Christianity was seemingly thriving. That's the decade that John MacArthur came of age. Born in 1939, his formative teenage years cut through the middle of the 50s, when President Dwight D. Eisenhower led the nation through a time of boundless post-war optimism and innovation. Seemingly, nothing could go wrong in Eisenhower's America. May we pursue the right without self-righteousness. May we know unity without conformity. May we grow in strength without pride in self. In the 50s, television became prominent, led by wholesome family-centered shows like Leave it to Beaver, I Love Lucy, and a show called Father Knows Best. I suggest you prepare for the worst. What do you mean? Bud has been stabbed by one of Cupid's deadlier arrows. A blonde has come into his life. <laughs> At the time, John MacArthur was in high school in Southern California. Ian Murray's biography of John MacArthur isn't crystal clear on MacArthur's high school years. So I texted him to ask him where he went to high school what the name of the school was and where was it located. His reply was classic. He said, Coulter Academy, third in Westmoreland, LA, south of Silver Lake, east of Hollywood, not far from Amy. Amy is a reference to Amy Simple McPherson. She was the prophetess who started the Angelus Temple. More on her actually in our charismatic episode later in the season. But anyway, MacArthur's in high school and he didn't know it then, but a friendship from those years would shape John's view of the gospel and his future ministry. When I was in high school, I had a friend. He and I used to go sometimes on the weekend down to Pershing Square, which is in the middle of Los Angeles. And uh, it's kind of where bums and derelicts and street people hang out. And we would go down there for the express purpose of witnessing, sharing Christ. He was very active in his church. I was very active in my church. Uh, we were close buddies. He played first base on the baseball team. I played shortstop. We played basketball together. We played football together. His father would give me a summer job. We were close buddies. After high school, the two men went to different colleges. A few years passed and they reconnected during the summer. John was excited to see his old friend and find out what the Lord was doing in his life. What he heard stunned him. He told me he was an atheist. I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know how to file that theologically. I couldn't handle it. I didn't know whether uh, he could possibly have ever been a Christian and wind up an atheist. As a young Christian, coming of age at a time of so much optimism and innocence, John MacArthur had never encountered a former Christian, someone who had once professed faith in Christ, but now openly rejected him. Sadly, this wouldn't be the last time someone close to John abandoned the faith. When I went to college, I was student body vice president. I had a good friend who was student body president. Again, we played tandem backs in the same backfield in our football team in college. Uh, he was a youth pastor. After he graduated from college, I was a youth pastor after I graduated from college. He was my really close buddy. 
wound up teaching philosophy in the California state school system and running drugs, got into sexual orgies and denied the faith. I was the second close friend. I had a very difficult time again dealing with that. This is a guy raised in a Christian family. His father was a pastor. He was a youth pastor and totally abandoned everything about the faith, not only in theology, but in lifestyle. A close high school friend and then a close friend at his Christian college. But what about seminary, where each student has committed his life to ministry? Surely none of his classmates would suffer the same fate. If I went to seminary and um, the son of the dean was a very dear friend, close friend. We sang together, we ministered together, we talked theology together. And he married a girl who was into Buddhism and walked away from the faith. So I was really struggling with that. A young John MacArthur had no category for what was happening to his friends. He was confident that at some point they had believed the gospel. He was also convinced that salvation was permanent. Once you're in the kingdom, God won't let you go. So how did these men go from evangelizing and preparing for ministry to atheism and Buddhism? Those experiences and the uncomfortable questions they raised would shape John MacArthur's future ministry. They would force him to take a deep look at what the Bible says about those who fall away. We're going to explore that aspect of John's life in this episode. It has a little bit of everything. A deep dive into one of MacArthur's most famous sermons, his senior thesis from seminary that he wrote on a typewriter, a group of former evangelicals that are deconstructing their faith, and an old theological term, apostasy. We're talking about all that because we want to talk about one thing, the assurance of our salvation. This season, remember, we're on a quest to understand endurance in ministry. And endurance in ministry requires endurance in the faith. Apostasy, that falling away that we need to talk about, leads us to talk about assurance and answers the question, how can we know that we will endure? How can we know that we will never fall away? How can anyone know, without a doubt, that God has saved him forever and that God will never let you go? We will find out on this episode, the third of season three. We're calling it, When Believers Stop Believing. My name is Austin T. Duncan. I'm the director of the MacArthur Center for Expository Preaching at the Master Seminary. And this is season three of the podcast from the center, The Enduring, the timeless and fruitful ministry of John MacArthur. Of the thousands of sermons John MacArthur has preached over the past 54 years, the one he preached on March 8th, 2013 might be one of his finest. I remember it vividly. It was a Friday night, the final session of the annual Shepherds Conference at Grace Community Church. More than 3,000 men had already heard nearly a dozen sermons. But from MacArthur's opening illustration, the crowd showed no signs of sermon burnout. They were riveted. In the mid-20th uh, century, there were two young, gifted evangelists, 
They came on the scene uh, in the United States at the same time. One of those two young evangelists you know very well, Billy Graham. His history is common knowledge and uh, still being lived at this very hour. The other young evangelist, they were, by the way, called the Gold Dust Twins. There's a man named Charles Templeton. Probably don't know about him. It was Charles Templeton and Billy Graham, along with a man named Tory Johnson, who founded Youth for Christ. By all accounts, Charles Templeton was the more gifted preacher of the Gold Dust Twins. Intelligent, handsome, winsome, eloquent, oratorical, brilliant, persuasive, effective. All those words were used to describe him. In fact, in 1946, the NAE, the National Association of Evangelicals, gave him an award. Christian organizations gives really, give really weird awards. And Charles Templeton was given this award, Best Used of God. What a bizarre award. How do they know? But nonetheless, he has in his um, archives uh, a Best Used of God award for 1946. Charles Templeton overshadowed Billy Graham. He was the better speaker, the more effective speaker. The two of them went on an evangelistic tour. Uh, they went on an evangelistic tour of Europe, and they preached in England, Scotland, Ireland, Sweden, and a few other places, and they alternated as they, as they went, uh, preaching to large audiences. Charles Templeton in the 1950s uh, was given an opportunity to have uh, weekly television programs on NBC and CBS. He uh, preached uh, in the United States to as many as 20,000 people a night across the country. He preached in youth rallies again and again with thousands of young people. He became a church planter. He became a pastor. He attended Princeton Seminary. He was an evangelist with the Presbyterian Church. He had a week of gospel preaching ministry at Yale University. MacArthur hooks his audience in a brilliant way, pulling them into the story. Every man in the crowd and every person who's listened to that sermon since has wanted to keep listening to find out why they all know about Billy Graham, probably the most famous preacher in American history, but have never heard of Charles Templeton. After setting the stage, John delivers the surprising reason. In 1957, Charles Templeton declared himself an agnostic. He rejected the Bible and he rejected Christ. He attaches the firmness of that rejection to the reading of Thomas Paine. And then he says, in 10 days, he read Voltaire, Bertrand Russell, Robert Ingersoll, David Hume, and Algis Huxley. By the end of those 10 days, he was virtually an atheist. He left the ministry with $600 in his pocket, returned to Canada, and became a journalist, erstwhile journalist for a while, then became a politician and almost became the Prime Minister of Canada. So formidable. 
1957, stepped into the eternal blackness of apostasy. Blasphemed Christ and signed off with a book. The title of the book he wrote is Farewell to God. As surprising as Templeton's rejection of the faith is, it's not as shocking as what happens to this agnostic in the final days of his life. John returns to Templeton's story at the climax of his sermon, and we'll finish the story in a little bit. Before we get to the end of Charles Templeton's life, it's helpful to understand that he isn't the first seemingly committed Christian to abandon his faith. That's been happening since one of Jesus' 12 disciples betrayed him for nothing more than a few pieces of silver. But Judas, he was an apostle with a capital A, and he was personally discipled by Christ 24-7 for three years. Every day, everything Jesus ever taught, everything he did, you know, the, the part that's not even in the New Testament, um, the adventure of just being in his presence continuously, the, the, the son of the living God. So um, that's no surprise. And, and I think it's instructive that that Judas is who he is in the in the twelve. I, I think that's very, very instructive because that's the extreme apostasy. How is it possible to do what he did, knowing what he knew, knowing who he knew, with all that Jesus was? He didn't love him. He didn't worship him. He didn't honor him. And even when he was guilty, he didn't go to him for forgiveness. And he knew the message of repentance and forgiveness. So if an apostle can be an apostate, why would we not expect anybody in spiritual leadership? The gospel account of Judas teaches every Christian of every generation a crucial lesson. Defections are not surprising. If one of Christ's disciples abandoned him, anyone can. In fact, this process of professing Christ for years, then denying him, is common enough that there's a theological term for it, one that John MacArthur just referenced, apostate. So the noun apostate refers to a person who formerly claimed to be a Christian, but has irreversibly abandoned and renounced Orthodox Christianity. This is Andy Nacelli, Associate Professor of New Testament and Systematic Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. In our last episode, Dr. Nacelli helped us think carefully about theological triage and the conscience. Now, he's lending us his sharp theological mind as we talk about the definition and nature of apostasy. Apostasy is decisively turning away from the faith. So, by definition, only a professing Christian can apostatize. So, given the definition, I, I can't actually look around and point at someone with 100% certainty and say, that is an apostate, because he's not dead yet. In other words, if someone abandons the faith, they can still come back. 
God can still call them to repent. God is patient, gracious, willing to bring back prodigals. But if someone professes Christ and then denies him for the rest of their life, then that is an apostate. After all those close encounters with apostates in his younger days, John MacArthur became intrigued with the concept, so interested that he decided to write his senior thesis on Judas, working through how someone so close to Christ could fall so spectacularly. Our crack research team here at MacArthur Center, led by the one and only Corey Williams, was able to dig up a digital copy of that thesis. They printed it out for me and it's a, it's a sturdy volume, more than an inch thick. I brought it to MacArthur, put it in his hands and it was like he was reunited with an old friend. I asked him to read a portion of it for the podcast. The same kind of tragedy that befell Judas may be awakening in any life. Observe the answer of the twelve. Lord, is it I? Do not allow self-complacent pride to remove a man from the guilt of a Judas. There are undetected instabilities in all men. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he stands take heed lest he fall. Judas is no solitary monster standing alone in the history of the world. Many men have sold out for money. There have been Judases in every age. There are Judases in this era. There are men who have eaten of Christ's bread at his table and lifted their heel against him. Such men may pass quietly through the world, never suspected until they reach an experimentum crucius, which nothing but sincerity can stand. It is here that they will fall. Certainly there is an evil heart of unbelief in everyone, and if not for divine grace, it would make of all men Judases. During my conversation with Dr. Nacelli, he pointed to a more personal example than Judas, one from his own life. My friend Josh Harris. Um, Josh Harris was a pastor, professing Christian, wrote amazingly helpful books, and then he rejected Christianity. In case you're not familiar with the name Joshua Harris, let me get you up to speed. In 1997, he became an evangelical rock star when his book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, sold more than 1.2 million copies. It promoted a very specific model of courtship and disparaged modern conceptions of dating. After several other books and more than a decade as a pastor of a reformed, charismatic megachurch in Maryland, Harris left the ministry and then left the faith entirely. In 2016, he released the following statement on his social media pages. I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. With those emotionally charged words, Harris became one of the leaders of the modern deconstruction movement. He looked to himself, to his reasoning, to his emotions, as the guiding force in his life. And as he made himself the ultimate source of authority, instead of God's word, he decided it was time to strip away all the convictions he's held onto since childhood. He tore down the life he'd built 
on God's word and rebuilt it in his own image. That's what the deconstruction movement does. Those who participate in it dethrone God's truth and crown themselves Lord of all. As a pastor, I, I excommunicated people. If you're not living according to the teaching of the Bible and you're living in unrepentant sin, then you have to be put out of the church. And I think I came to a point of recognizing, you know what, I'm not living according to this. And I held other people to this standard and, you know, I excommunicated myself essentially. So how do I think of him now? I don't call him an apostate. I don't say he's apostatized. I don't know for sure. I'm praying that God would still save him and bring him back. And he would uh, show at the end that he, would, he didn't apostatize, he, um, but, but God saved him. But if he continues in his path and he dies without repenting, then he would be an apostate. And I could look back and say retroactively, yeah, he was an apostate. So why do people abandon the faith, apostatize, deconstruct? Here's how MacArthur answered that question when I asked him. People don't want to deny themselves. They don't, they don't want to follow Christ at any price. There's no repentance. There's no genuine saving faith. So when you have mega churches with huge crowds, probably most of them, in some cases, not real Christians, um, you have all those people potentially deconstructing because sooner or later, they're, they're going to be bored by their phony righteousness and they're, they're going to be seduced much more strongly by their sin. So that, that is the problem. If you pretend to be a Christian, you don't have any internal, you don't have any honest internal passion for righteousness. You're, you're, you're pretending for whatever reason. But over time, over time, the lack of motivation toward righteousness and the presence of an unabated motivation towards sin is going to bring a person to the point of abandonment. The Bible has a lot to say about apostasy. It reserves some of its harshest language for those who walk away from the faith. Listen to 2 Peter 2, verse 20 through 22. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed onto them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallow in the mire. Here's MacArthur preaching from that very text. His sermon is titled, Creatures That Were Born to Be Killed, Part 3. Sheesh, what a title. You see, an apostate, false teacher, as Peter is describing him, can only be bred, listen to this, can only be bred in the brilliant light of the truth of the gospel and the scripture and can only be bred in proximity to Jesus Christ. They are not made outside Christianity, they're made inside. 
They're made inside the church. They are bred in the church, half exhumed from the muck of, wi- of wickedness, half out, half in. They eventually reject truth and try to seduce all they can to fulfill their self-gratification and then fall back in the muck. They go on sinning willfully and habitually. For them there is no sacrifice. For them there is the greatest judgment, the hottest hell. For they have sinned against light, and they have sinned against knowledge, and they have sinned against understanding. Perhaps the most famous and harshest warning against apostasy in the Bible comes in the epistle to the Hebrews. Chapter 10, verse 26 to 31, says it this way. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has ignored the law of Moses is put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God has always hated that most abominable of sins, the sin of a man who knows the truth, knows it completely, and identifies himself with the people of the truth, then after a given time turns his back and walks away. That is the most serious sin in all of Scripture. So it's one thing that an apostate can be sure of, judgment. And judgment here is described of as fiery indignation which shall devour. I imagine that a lot of you listening right now have seen what happened to Joshua Harris and so many others in the deconstruction movement, and you've wondered if you or someone that you love will deconstruct or become apostate. You feared that one day you will walk away from the faith. Is that something that you should be afraid of? Can you lose your salvation? Well, if you're listening to this and you're worried that one day you might become an apostate like Judas, Dr. Nacelli has some encouragement for you. If someone tells you, I'm afraid that I'm an apostate, then that's your first main evidence they're not. Uh, I, I can't say that with certainty, but as a general rule, apostates don't care. They're not concerned about that. So that's a good sign if you're concerned. Not wanting to fall away is a great starting point. But how can you be sure, without a doubt, that your salvation is secure, that it's not going anywhere? John has answered that question plenty of times throughout the years. Here's a great example from a short radio program from Grace to You. It's called Bible Q&A with John MacArthur. Is there anywhere in the Bible where it tells us that there are certain circumstances that would cause God to remove our salvation? Well, the answer to the question is no. There is nowhere in Holy Scripture where there are any circumstances by which God would remove our salvation. 
In fact, just the opposite is true. Listen to Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Or what? Tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Peril? Sword? He goes on. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Case closed. John makes it clear that eternal security is all over the Bible, that once we are saved, we are always saved. There's nothing more comforting if you are a believer. If you have, as Romans 10.9 says, confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. In that case, the text says you will be saved. So if you want to attack the security of the believer, you are attacking, first of all, God. You're saying he changed his verdict. Secondly, you're attacking Christ. You're saying his cross work was inadequate, his high priestly work cannot maintain us. And then you're attacking the Holy Spirit and saying he is inadequate to cause the believer to persevere. And a a discrediting of the entire trinity is wrapped up in a denial of the security of the believer. Does that help you to feel secure? Still. It's one thing to know that once you are saved, you can't lose it. It's another thing to know, without a doubt, that you actually have that salvation. We turn to that issue and the nature of assurance after the break. I imagine that there are a few of you listening right now who've been considering pastoral ministry and you would love to attend the Master's Seminary but you also are pretty sure you can't afford it. I get that concern. The Master's Seminary is in Los Angeles, not exactly an affordable housing market. But if your concern is financial, here's some facts you need to consider. Nearly every student who attends TMS receives financial aid. There are even full tuition scholarships available. And on top of that, several friends who attend Grace Community Church are helping us provide affordable housing for students. That means an education at the Master's Seminary is more affordable than you may realize. So if you're interested in a TMS education, if you want to train at the premier institution for expository preaching and pastoral ministry, then don't let financial concerns keep you from reaching out and starting the conversation. Go to tms.edu and request more information. That's tms.edu. Now back to our episode. Periodically through the years at Grace Community Church, John has set aside his Sunday night sermon for a time of Q&A with the congregation. Three microphones are set up, one in the center aisle and then one on each side of the worship center. Anyone can come to the microphone and ask Pastor John a question. There have been dozens of these throughout the years. The questions can range from odd, strange theological minutiae to questions that are heartfelt and genuine and pressing. A question that's certainly not strange is perhaps the one that he's asked most commonly. It's a version of this question. How do I know that I'm a Christian? It's one of those questions that could keep you up at night. 
and John always answers it so tenderly and with so much grace. No more so than a few years ago when a woman named Joy came forward to one of the microphones. Their conversation is encouraging, pastoral, and filled with kindness. Thank you for uh, answering my questions. My name is Joy. Hi, Joy. And it's an answer to prayer to be here. So here they are. Three real quick questions. Okay. A little complicated. How do I know if I am saved, if I have blasphemous thoughts? Should I be taking communion if I am not sure if I am saved? If I am not chosen, would I even care about being saved? Really good questions, Joy. You have a wonderful name, but sometimes it's hard to live up to, isn't it? I mean, how would you like to be named Joy and have to always be assumed to be possessing all of that? I can, I can hear the cry of your heart, Joy. I, I, I want to make it as simple as I can. Um, the fact that you are asking these questions is evidence of the work of God in your heart. It is evidence of your desire for Him and for salvation and to know Him. That, that is evident there. The fact that you would stand up in front of all of us and, and unbear your heart in such a sweet and honest way is evidence of the, of the hunger of your heart to know Him. And I think that's what you're essentially saying. Um, the way you know that you are saved is by your desire. Do you desire to know God? Yes. Do you desire do you desire that he would know you and love you? Yes. Do you desire to love him? Yes. Do you desire to honor him? Yes. Do you desire to obey his word? I do, but I I can't do it on my own strength. Well, of course not. Join the club. <laughs> and that's why we're all here. This is the same with all of us. Um, it's all of grace, isn't it? It's all of grace. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 helps us because this is the Apostle Paul. This is the, the one that we would elevate as the, su the supreme example of, of a Christian. And he says, um, well, he calls himself a wretched man because he says, I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do. Uh, he said, there is, a, there is a principle in me that loves the law of God, but I see another principle in me warring against the principle of my mind, and it's the principle of my flesh, and it causes me to do the very opposite of the things I want to do. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And that's, that's a very interesting illustration. One of the ways that murderers were punished in the ancient world was that the victim that they had murdered was, was strapped to their body, and eventually the decay from the corpse would destroy them. Paul feels, even though he's a believer, that he's got a, the dead body of his, of his sinful nature still tied to him. So what you're saying to me is essentially the same cry that came out of the noblest of all Christians. And that very cry is evidence of the work of God in your heart, that, that you desire to know God, to be loved by God, to love God, to honor God, to obey God, and that you know you can't is a statement of a genuine believer because you recognize that you aren't everything you should be and you are utterly dependent upon God himself and upon the Holy Spirit. That's true of your salvation. You can't save yourself and you can't sanctify yourself. So you're, you're where all honest Christians live. You're saying, I'm not what I, what I want to be, but I know what I want to be. I'm not what I ought to be, but I know what I ought to be. It's, it's about direction. It's about affection. It's about love. And we've talked about that recently when Jesus was restoring Peter uh, in John 21, he said three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter had been caught in disobedience again. And yet he said, Lord, you know, you know me, you know, I love you. Then feed my sheep. He accepted the failing uh, life of Peter, the tendency to be disobedient and um, even maybe to have uh, ungodly thoughts, which is just part of that remaining sin nature. 
But he accepted that man, and he accepts all of us, if we love him and calls on us to love him more. So you don't, you don't want to evaluate the character of your salvation by your failures. You want to assess the genuineness of your salvation by your desires, by what you love, what you long for, what you want. And you're here. And that, that says everything. This is not a, a place for people running from God. This is a place for people running to him. But asking the question is important. The, the purest joy, to kind of play on your name a little bit, the purest joy in the Christian life comes when we are obeying him, loving him, serving him, worshiping him. That's when we enjoy the most assurance. Security is one thing. Security means that I am saved and he will keep me until I see him face to face. I'm secure in him. That's not assurance. Assurance is the confidence I have in my mind of my salvation. Many people are saved. They're secure, secured by God in that salvation, but they don't always have the assurance. Why do we struggle with assurance? Because we know our weakness, because we know our temptations, because we know we're not what we ought to be. Sometimes because we fall into a pattern of sin and we lose our assurance. Sometimes because um, perhaps we have been taught wrongly that um, you might do something cause you to lose your salvation and that generates a certain amount of fear. But to go back to the main point, the very desire of your heart is the evidence of the work of God in your life because unregenerate enemies of God don't have those desires. Okay? Does that help? Thank you. Thank you, Joy. In 1992, John MacArthur wrote a book to help Christians like Joy be confident of their salvation. It's called Saved Without a Doubt. I'd encourage you to get a copy, especially if you or someone you love is struggling with assurance. He makes a thoroughly biblical case for the permanence of salvation. He walks through 11 tests from 1 John that can help anyone evaluate the reality of their faith. And he shows believers how to respond to doubt so that they can experience lasting assurance. Then, at the end of the book, he tells a simple, beautiful story that illustrates the true grounds of our assurance. A man who had been deeply moved by the death of a friend spoke to the presiding minister at the graveside service. The man expressed his desire to become a Christian but added, there's just one thing that makes me hesitate. I'm afraid I won't be able to hold out. I work with a pretty tough group. They're hardly what you would call religious. I don't think there's a real Christian in the bunch and I know they won't take kindly to their being one. The minister stooped down to pick up one of the flowers adorning the grave and commented, take a good look at this flower. It grew right in the mud and slime and decay of the earth. Yet see how clean and spotless it is. That's because God kept it and he can keep you too. John's talking about the glorious doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The beautiful truth that if we are in Christ, we will make it to the end. We will not deny him. We will not reject him. We will never be apostate. Not because we are strong, but because Christ is holding us. In John 10, 27 to 29, Jesus says it best. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one 
will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So, dear listener, if you love Christ, be encouraged. Your faith is in His hands, not yours. So don't be afraid of the deconstruction movement or the reality of apostasy. It has always happened in the church. It will always happen. Jesus predicted it when he said that the church is going to have wheat and tares. When someone outright abandons the gospel, when they turn from Christ, it's always tragic and heartbreaking, and it always includes a lot of regret. That was certainly the case for Billy Graham's friend, Charles Templeton. Near the end of Templeton's life, he sat down with Lee Strobel, the Christian journalist. Here's a retelling of their conversation from Strobel's book, A Case for Faith. Listen closely to Templeton's regret. And so how do you assess this Jesus? It seemed like the next logical question, but I wasn't ready for the response it would evoke. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp, an insistent edge, now took on a melancholy and reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke at an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except this was a form of greatness? I was taken aback. You sound like you really care about him, I said. Well, yes, he's the most important thing in my life came his reply. I, 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 he stuttered, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. I wasn't sure how to respond. You say that with some emotion, I said. Well, yes, everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus, yes. Yes. And tough. Just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and the exploited. There's no question he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people. But Jesus is Jesus. And so the world would do well to emulate him? Oh my goodness, yes. I've tried. And try is as far as I can go. To act as I've believed he would act. That doesn't mean I could read his mind, because one of the most fascinating things about him was that he often did the opposite thing you'd expect. Abruptly, Templeton cut short his thoughts. There was a brief pause 
almost as if he was uncertain whether he should continue. Uh, but no, he said slowly. He's the most... He stopped, then started again. In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And, if I may put it this way, he said as his voice began to crack, I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Templeton fought to compose himself. I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply and wiped away a tear. After a few more awkward moments, he waved his hands dismissively. Finally, quietly but adamantly, he insisted, Enough of that. The title of MacArthur Shepherd's Conference sermon, where he talks about Templeton, is A Tale of Two Preachers. It tells the intersecting and parallel stories of Judas and Peter. The former rejected Jesus fully and finally. The latter rejected him briefly. And then Jesus restores Peter and affirms his true and lasting faith. Here's John MacArthur at the end of that sermon, connecting Templeton, the stories of Peter and Judas, and a salvation that endures. What is required to make you repent is a vision of Christ that elicits love, captivating love. Peter loved Jesus. He loved him. When their eyes met in that deep night in the garden, he was crushed into deep sadness and he was driven to tears in that garden of the high priest. This is the mind, may I say, this is the mind of the true believer. And I will tell you as a pastor what I've learned all these years. What I'm looking for in my people is real salvation. And when I see it, it shows up in love for Christ that causes delight in obedience. Thanks for listening to Season 3 of the MacArthur Center Podcast. For our next episode, we're talking about friendship, how it shaped John MacArthur's life, and how it's essential to an enduring ministry. That's next time on The Enduring, the timeless and fruitful ministry of John MacArthur. The Enduring is produced by Austin T. Duncan, Corey Williams, and Jeremy Volo. Special thanks to Andy Nacelli for his contributions to this episode. If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure you like and subscribe. That helps others discover our little show. And for more information about the MacArthur Center, go to macarthurcenter.org. And to learn more about the Master's Seminary, visit tms.edu. ATD 